You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please take your copy of the Scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. As we begin this morning, I want, uh, I, I want you to picture yourself in a very specific situation. You and your family are visiting a new church. You've never entered this church before, so the people and the place are totally unfamiliar to you. After a couple of songs have been sung, one of the pastors gets up and he begins to make an announcement. He asks a couple in their early 30s to stand, and as they stand, you realize that they're holding in their arms a newborn baby. The pastor then congratulates the couple on the birth of a healthy baby boy. As he makes the announcement, it's obvious by their smiles that this couple is overflowing with joy at the birth of this new baby. In fact, the congregation begins to clap. And as they do, uh, you turn to your spouse with a smile and you realize that, that even you are, are feeling some sense of excitement for this couple, even though you've never met them before. Now, why are you moved by this? even though you have no clue who these people are? Well, because the gift of a child is a wonderful thing. It's an exciting announcement, even when you don't know the people involved. Now I want you to picture yourself in a similar situation, but you're at your own church this time. And you know almost everyone in attendance. In fact, many of your closest friends are part of the church family. One of your pastors gets up, recognizes a couple in their early 30s, and they, like the couple in the first story, are holding a newborn baby in their arms. The pastor announces to the church that the couple has just given birth to their first child, a healthy baby boy. This time your reaction is different. As the announcement is only beginning, your eyes fill with tears and you're overcome emotionally as you experience a profound sense of joy for this couple. What's different in this situation than the first one I mentioned? In, in both places, didn't you hear the announcement of a child's birth? Well, yes, but in the second scenario, you knew more of the story you knew that this couple had tried for years to have a child and had not been able to. You knew that two years ago when they finally got pregnant, they had a miscarriage. You had prayed with them as they saw understanding. You had encouraged them to rest in the sovereignty of God. You had helped them as they wrestled with thoughts of failure and hopelessness. So when the time came and a child was born, it was much much more than a simple announcement of a child's birth. It was the gracious answer to years of pain and heartache and trial. Now, there may have been those in the audience that reacted the way you did in the first situation, but that's because they didn't understand the whole story. They heard an announcement when you heard the culmination of a story that had been unfolding for years.
Friends, it's only when we understand how the events of the first Christmas fit within the whole story of Scripture that we hear more than an announcement of a child's birth. We hear the culmination of a story that's been unfolding for years. This is precisely where the Gospel of Matthew begins. As we take a brief look at the first two chapters of Matthew this morning, I want to draw your attention to four important developments within the text. And they all take place under the canopy of one dominant theme. So here are the four developments. The Savior is born. The Son is delivered. The King is enraged. And the people are saved. Now here's the overarching theme, the canopy under which the story unfolds. The Scriptures are fulfilled. The Scriptures are fulfilled. This theme of the fulfillment of Scripture develops straight out of the gate in Matthew, and it's meant to run like a thread that connects and and pulls together the whole story. Scripture is being fulfilled not only in the person and work of Jesus, but in the specific events surrounding His birth and childhood the old testament pervades the gospel of matthew there are 55 old testament quotations throughout matthew well mark luke and john combined contain only 65 we find this old testament emphasis immediately in matthew 1 1 look at it with me the book of the genealogy of jesus christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. The Gospel of Matthew doesn't introduce to us a new story, but it continues the story that is already being told. The Old Testament concludes with a note of anticipation, and the New Testament begins with a declaration of fulfillment. The promised one you've been waiting for, the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent, the offspring of Abraham who will bring blessing to the nations, the Davidic king who will rule and reign over an everlasting kingdom. After 400 years of silence, Matthew's gospel begins with a glorious announcement. The king has come. One commentator explains it this way. God works out his promise to Abraham in Israel's history and ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. Nothing in history is accidental. Every detail in the Old Testament from the very beginning was pointing to a king who would come. All of history revolves around this king. And this king is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Friends, not only does this reveal the Christ-centered nature of the Bible, but this is a good and necessary reminder for each of us, especially during a time of the year that has morphed into a holiday that focuses on all the things we want. It's good for us to be reminded that the Word of God is not primarily about us. We are not at the center of the biblical story. This is God's Word. He breathed it out, and it's the revelation of His glory and the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is why we sing, come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn King. Matthew's gospel begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and then it records the story of his birth. 
Last week, our study focused on the redemptive story prior to the events of Christ's birth. And we saw that while sin destroys and sin devastates, the God of grace promises rescue and victory through his perfect son. In fact, the events of Christmas reflect what we know is true about the whole story. What becomes before and after, there is both trial and triumph. We saw in Isaiah what is crystal clear throughout The entire Old Testament, the promised Messiah will bring victory, but his victory will be won through suffering. There has to be death before there can be resurrection. Jesus is the victor, but his victory will come through immense pain, trial, rejection, and suffering. The Old Testament connection established immediately in Matthew's gospel is only strengthened as we move from the genealogy of Jesus Christ into the story of his birth and early childhood. In fact, Matthew 1, 18 through 2, 23 is constructed entirely around five Old Testament texts. In our remaining time this morning, I want to draw your attention to each of these five Old Testament quotations. As we look at each quotation, we'll also see how this story develops. The first major development in the story coincides with the first Old Testament quotation. First, we see the Savior is born. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. In chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, Matthew makes reference to Mary's miraculous conception of Jesus, Joseph's response to this news, and the angel's visit to Joseph. Now look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then what follows is a quotation of Isaiah 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew is reinforcing the supernatural nature of Jesus' conception and highlighting the shocking reality of the incarnation. Jesus will be Emmanuel, God with us. But, but Matthew wants us to know that this is not a new plot twist. This is simply the fulfillment of the plan set in motion before time began and then consistently declared by the prophets through the ages. Matthew offers no description of the events of Christ's birth, but skips forward to some time after Jesus was born. So look at Chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So after Jesus was born, the Magi traveled to visit him. This group of astrologers from the east finds him by following a star, a star which will ultimately lead them to Bethlehem. Interestingly, it is Herod. It is Herod who sends these men to Bethlehem to locate the Christ child. And we know why he's doing it. But think about this part of the story. 
He does it for his own selfish and sinful purposes. But God has another plan, doesn't he? Let me, let me pause for a moment and encourage you. As you're reading through God's Word, I want to invite you to note all the times God uses the decisions or actions of someone who is totally opposed to Him to accomplish His good purposes. Think about this. Here God leads a group of men by their own pagan practices and the encouragement of a very wicked king. And God uses these things to lead them into the presence of Jesus where they bow in worship before Him. Don't forget, brothers and sisters, as you watch what is happening in the world around you, God is absolutely sovereign. He will do whatever He pleases. His purposes will be accomplished. Let this fuel your prayers and and give you boldness. So chapter 2, verse 5 brings us to the second Old Testament quotation. It comes from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Look at verse 5. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. If you actually flip back to Micah 5, verse 2, you'll notice that Matthew changes some of the language in his quotation. Most notably, he adds shepherd language. He's making it clear that the ruler in Micah 5, 2 is the one who fulfills the promise to David. In fact, uh, D.A. Carson points out that Matthew is setting up two important contrasts by bringing together the ideas that Christ is both a faithful and loving shepherd and a good and righteous ruler. And I want you to, I want you to hear this, this mini portrait of, of Jesus. Think about the religious leaders who claimed spiritual authority over God's people. How were they leading? How were they behaving? Uh, turn to Matthew chapter 23. And let's look at a text together which describes the way these religious leaders are shepherding. And listen to the words of Jesus beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi. 
by others. Brothers and sisters, this is not this is not how Jesus shepherds his people, is it? He protects his sheep. He feeds his sheep. He calls his sheep. He leaves the 99 to rescue the one. And he ultimately lays down his own life so that his sheep might live. What a contrast. But Matthew isn't only highlighting Jesus as a faithful and loving shepherd, but also as a good and righteous ruler. Who is the king who summons the Magi to go in search of Jesus? It's Herod. And he is marked by jealousy and insecurity. He is not concerned with the safety and well-being of his people. He, He does not use his strength to protect the innocent and vulnerable. I'll say more about Herod in a bit, but it's clear in our text, especially by the events laid out in verse 16, Herod is a wicked, wicked ruler. Friends, the contrast between Herod the king and King Jesus could not be more striking. In fact, the contrast between King Jesus and all earthly rulers could not be more striking. How does the prophet Isaiah describe King Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, brothers and sisters, the announcement of Christ's birth is the fulfillment of the greatest promise ever made. The good shepherd has arrived. The righteous and benevolent king has come. This is why Christmas is a time of rejoicing. There's a wonderful song that perfectly encapsulates the rejoicing that should mark every believer, especially during the Christmas season. And and what I love about this is a truth It's a truth that transcends both the suffering and heartache that many of you experience during the holidays. It also transcends and brings into focus the fleeting joy of earthly things. The text of the song says this, All the world rejoice for the baby comes as a humble prince in the night. The Word made flesh, Emmanuel, the everlasting light. Let the warmth of heaven reach the coldest heart with the gospel of His grace. For His heel will bruise the serpent's head. Rejoice, all the world rejoice. Now after Herod sends out the Magi, they find Jesus, give Him gifts, worship Him, And then they leave for home after being warned in a dream. They ignore Herod completely. As you might have guessed, this development doesn't make Herod terribly happy. So we arrive at the second development in the story. The son is delivered. Look at verses 13 through 15 of chapter 2. 
Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Joseph is warned by an angel of the Lord to take his wife and son to Egypt because Herod is irate and irrational. Joseph obeys and verse 15 concludes with our third Old Testament quotation. It's taken from Hosea 11 verse 1. Look at verse 15 again. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. It's very interesting that we find in this quotation allusions to both Moses and Israel. Right? Like Moses was rescued when the edict went out to kill the Israelite baby boys in Exodus 1 and 2, Jesus is spared here as well. This allusion to Moses shouldn't be surprising considering the multiple New Testament references to Jesus as the one greater than Moses and all the prophets. But we also find a comparison between Jesus and Israel. Hosea 11.1 is clearly referring to the nation of Israel and their deliverance from Egypt. Israel is the son and God's love is demonstrated in the exodus. He rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt. He calls his son out. I want you to listen carefully, and and there's so much that could be said about this, but let let me just give you a summary thought. Here's the point of this quotation applied to Jesus. Jesus will prove faithful where the nation of Israel had been faithless. In numerous respects, Jesus recapitulates the history of Israel as a whole, but he is perfectly obedient at every step. Oh, brothers and sisters, just like God sovereignly delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, he now delivers his son from Egypt so that one day his son will deliver us from sin and death. This brings us to the fourth development in the story. The king is enraged. Look at verse 16. And then Herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod is furious and devises an unconscionably evil Plan. He sent his henchmen to murder all the male babies in Bethlehem under two years old. Herod had a good idea what Jesus' age would be, and his heart was so blinded by rage and insecurity that he ordered the murder of little boys simply to make sure his competition would be eliminated. Now, an act like this was not out of character for Herod. 
History records that Herod murdered members of his own family. So certainly ordering the slaughter of of 20 or 30 little boys in a small village just a few miles outside Jerusalem was no big deal. In fact, a, a number of commentators say the reason we don't have clear historical record of this particular instance is because it was so common. This is a man who also ordered that certain people would be put to death when he died, so it would appear that many were mourning his death. Herod's wicked actions bring us to the fourth major Old Testament quotation. It's from Jeremiah 31. Look at verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Almost all of Jeremiah 31 is about the coming new covenant. The gracious act of God whereby He fulfills all of His promises in Jesus Christ. But tucked into Jeremiah 31 is a lone verse that reflects the current grief surrounding the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles. Uh, G.K. Beale explains, Jewish mothers have watched their sons go off to battle some to die, others to be carried away captive to distant lands. Still more were forcibly evicted from Israel to ensure that the nation would not pose a military threat in the future. The grieving mothers of Israel are personified by the name Rachel. So this reference makes sense given what's happening as a result of Herod's command in our text. Just as the mothers of Israel mourn the loss of their sons in Jeremiah, now the mothers in Bethlehem mourn the slaughter of their little boys at the hands of a wicked king. Friends, in both Jeremiah and now in Matthew, we find those who have experienced loss. They're mourning. Their pain is severe. Their circumstances seem hopeless. But what did we... What did we talk about last week? When things look hopeless, God has a plan. Triumph comes through trial. Victory comes through suffering. In in fact, in Jeremiah 31, the prophet goes, goes on to say that the exiles will return. Verse 16. There is hope for the future, verse 17. God will bring His people back from captivity, verse 23. And He will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint, verse 25. In other words, Matthew refers to Jeremiah 31 because it points beyond immediate sorrow and and immediate pain. It points to the Messiah's entrance into the world. Beyond pain and death, there is certain victory. And in this, and this alone, we find hope. It's against the backdrop of this horrific suffering and terrible wickedness that God's providence is displayed. He delivers His Son so that His Son can save His people. Do you see the irony here? 
Herod is desperately trying to kill the one who will ultimately lay down his life willingly. Jesus will die, just not yet. The final development in this part of the redemptive story is found in verses 19 through 23. The people are saved. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. He rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. You notice when I read verse 23, it talked about Old Testament fulfillment yet again. This is the fifth instance in chapters 1 and 2. But what's interesting about this one is there, there actually isn't an Old Testament text that explicitly talks about anyone who will be called a Nazarene. So what's happening? Well, this is the only reference to prophets that is plural, So it's likely that Matthew is summarizing a theme that's found in several Old Testament texts. And here's the theme. God's perfect plan to redeem sinners wasn't what anyone would have come up with. At every point, it's unexpected. Nothing about it is according to human wisdom. We see this again in these final verses, the reference to Nazareth and to Jesus being called a Nazarene emphasizes something important about the Messiah. Uh, One scholar explains it this way. Matthew has pointed out the insignificant town in which Jesus was born, the ignominy of his flight to Egypt, the grief of death surrounding his infancy. It would be appropriate if, if a reference to the obscure and despised city of his childhood appeared here. Do you see what's happening? Oh, friends, I invite you to marvel at the plan of God. I called this final point, the people are saved because that's where the rest of the story leads. And by emphasizing the humility and the obscurity of Jesus, Matthew directs our gaze to the cross where Jesus would die in the most humiliating way. Hanging between two criminals, stripped naked, spit upon, beat, and mocked. We see in the earliest stages that this is where everything's headed. Jesus didn't come to be lauded as a king who sits on an earthly throne. His plan was far greater, but it required humiliation and obscurity and ultimately death on a cross. 
Jesus was born to die. He would conquer death, but only after he suffered death. Again, there's a beautiful Christmas song that summarizes the truth we have discussed this morning. And I'll leave you with this. On a starlit hillside, shepherds watch their sheep. Slowly, David's city drifted off to sleep. But to this little town of no great renown, the Lord had a promise to keep. Prophets had, prophets had foretold it. A mighty king would come, long-awaited ruler, God's anointed one. But the sovereign of all looked helpless and small as God gave the world his own son. Wondrous gift of heaven, the Father sends the Son, planned from time eternal, moved by holy love. He will carry our curse and death he'll reverse so we can be daughters and sons. And who would have dreamed or ever foreseen that we could hold God in our hands, the giver of life, is born in the night, revealing God's glorious plan to save the world. Let's pray. Father, you are glorious in your sovereignty. You are majestic in your holiness. We are reminded as we recount the story of Christ's birth, His incarnation. We marvel at Your sovereign plan. In so many ways, it it boggles our minds. And yet, it creates in our hearts deep gratitude. Why? Why would You do this? Why would You love us in this way that You would send Your own Son We won't know that answer entirely until we are in your presence, Father. But we believe the words of Scripture that you loved sinners. And you did what was necessary to redeem them. And this is what it took. So thank you. Thank You, Father, for Your sovereign plan. Thank You, Jesus, for Your humble obedience. Thank You, Spirit, for Your powerful work in opening our eyes to see the beauty of Christ. We pray, O triune God, that if there is anyone here this morning who is visiting with us or who's been coming for quite some time and And they're being convicted even in this moment that they don't know Christ. Their sin is being exposed and you are granting them repentance and faith. Pray, Holy Spirit, that even in this moment you would make them new. Do it for the glory of the triune God and 
for their everlasting joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.